You are listening to a presentation of Streams Church in Goodyear, Arizona. For more audio and visual content, go to streamschurch.org. And now, Pastor Lloyd Baker. Today we have the privilege of knowing that Friday leads into Sunday, right? And as the video said, it might be Friday, but Sunday's a coming. But they didn't know Sunday was coming. And do you know what the period is called of not knowing? It's called Saturday. Saturday... Uh, for them was a day of remorse, a deep and painful regret of wrongdoing. It was a day of regret or a sense of loss, disappointment, and dissatisfaction. Saturday was a day of grief, a mental suffering or distress over affliction and loss. It's a day of shame, a painful feeling arising from the consciousness of doing something dishonorable or improper. Missing a day of self-accusation and self-condemnation. That's Saturday. We don't know actually a lot about Saturday in the scriptures because Saturday was a Sabbath day. It was a day of rest and reflection. Um, if you've been with us, we've been talking about the last week that Jesus was alive on this earth. We've been talking about each day leading up to Easter, uh, how each day of the Passion Week was calculated by Jesus. Every action was precise. Today's scripture we're going to be looking at is Luke 23. If you'd like to turn your Bibles there, verse 50. And Matthew chapter 27 later on. Sunday was Palm Sunday. And then Monday, Jesus went into the temple and he cleansed the temple of all the money changers and the corrupt uh, religious leaders of the day. Tuesday, the religious leaders tried to get Jesus into a debate that would discredit him amongst the people, into a theological debate. Uh, Wednesday, Judas was offended by Jesus and decided to betray Jesus to the Pharisees for 30 pieces of silver. Thursday was the day that Jesus was arrested and all the temptations that everybody went through. And last week we spoke about Good Friday. It's the day of agony. And I asked simply a question, was it really a Good Friday? Did Jesus have to be betrayed? And the answer was yes. Did Jesus have to be ridiculed and put on public display, uh, falsely accused? And the answer, yes. Did Jesus have to be whipped and beaten and a thorn of crowns placed on his forehead? Yes. Did Jesus have to become so exhausted that his body literally broke under the weight of the cross? Of course. And Jesus have to have his mother see him in that state and watch from afar? And the answer is yes. And why was that? And Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 tells us why. For we do not have a high priest. I'm sorry, verse 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And every move, every pain, every trial was calculated to prove that Jesus can empathize with everything you've ever experienced or will ever experience in life. Jesus understands whatever you have gone through or will go through. And that's why he had to go through everything he did. But that was Friday, the day of agony. On Friday, I can't do it like him. Mary's cried and Peter is denied. (laughs) Can you do it, Don? On Friday, the world is winning and 
People are sinning and evil is grinning. And on Friday, disciples are questioning what happened to their king. The Pharisees are celebrating. On Friday, hope is lost and death is won and sin is conquered. And Satan is laughing. But they didn't know Sunday was coming. And the day of not knowing is called Saturday. The day between the pain of defeat and the miracle of resurrection is called Saturday. The day that you desperately need a miracle is Saturday. The day that you pray and pray and pray and beg God is Saturday. It's an entire day of uncertainty, of remorse, of regret, of shame, of guilt, of self-condemnation. It's called Saturday. Luke chapter 23, verse 50. There was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action to crucify Jesus. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. This is all still Friday. It was the preparation day, And the Sabbath was about to begin. Friday was a preparation day. Saturday was the Sabbath. And according to Jewish law, no work whatsoever could be done on the Sabbath. So on Friday, everything that could had to be done on Saturday had to be done on Friday. So all the food had to be gathered for Friday. One day to prepare for two days. The Sabbath started on sunset of Friday and ended on sundown of Saturday. A 24-hour period. So they hurried to get Jesus down from the cross and get him in the tomb before the Sabbath started. Even the preparation for burial could not be performed on the Sabbath. The timeline of the crucifixion is found in Matthew 27, starting with verse 46. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, again about three in the afternoon, He gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Although we're not sure really exactly what time of the year that Jesus died, many don't believe it was the spring. If he happened to have died this week, the present time of sunset in Israel is about 7.15 this week. Jesus died somewhere around 3 in the afternoon. So they had four hours to get permission to bury Jesus, prepare his body with the spices, wrap him in linen, and place him in the tomb. John 19 tells us in the Living Bible Version that Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night, came also, bringing a hundred pounds of embalming ointment made from myrrh and alloys. Together they wrapped Jesus' body in a long linen cloth saturated with spices, as is the Jewish custom of burial. The requirements for a proper Jewish burial of Jesus was completed in four hours. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys. Myrrh was a perfume to help embalming. Um, Alloy was a resin, actually, extracted from a, a certain tree. It sort of like held everything into place. It was highly prized in the ancient world and very expensive. 
These spices would be placed next to the body and layered and tucked between the layers of the cloth as they wrapped the body. What is significant about the amount of the spice brought to the tomb is the amount of spice used in a burial signified the importance of the person being buried. The poor could hardly afford spices, so if you were of poor origin, typically you had none or very little spices. The more wealthy you were, the more authority you had, the more influence you had equaled the amount of spices. A hundred pounds would be the amount that they would do to bury a king. Apparently Nicodemus, a very wealthy man, wanted to give Jesus a king's burial. Everything according to Jewish law was accomplished on Friday afternoon before sunset. And when the Sabbath came at sundown, the disciples and the followers of Jesus were bound by Jewish law to sit and to wait and to rest. The Romans, though, had an advantage. They were not required by law to celebrate the Sabbath. So the high priest seized the opportunity. We found out about that in Matthew 27, verse 62. The next day, one after preparation day, so that was Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. And so they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. While everyone was resting... The Romans assured that no one would steal the body of Jesus from the grave. It's incredibly interesting that no disciple even considered stealing Jesus' body. In fact, they were in total disbelief when he did rise from the dead. The religious leaders of the day remembered the promise of Jesus and took action to ensure that the people could not be deceived by the stealing of the body. On Saturday, we know the disciples scattered, but then later on met up together. Perhaps they had a safe house. I want you to allow me a little speculation today, a little freedom. (laughs) As I suggest what it might have looked like on Saturday, because this is all we have the account in the Bible of what Saturday happened. I imagine the woman got to the house first. Luke 23, verse 55 says, The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Very important. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. It was late afternoon on Friday when they arrived at the house. We know for sure that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, and Joanna were there. Mary Magdalene had been cured of seven demons by Jesus early in his ministry. She was a follower of Jesus and possibly the leader of the women who did follow Jesus. She and Joanna were probably friends before they met Jesus because in that same scripture it says that Jesus not only delivered Mary but delivered Joanna also of demons. They all stayed close to Jesus. They were there with him at the crucifixion. They all saw Nicodemus and Joseph bury Jesus. In fact, the scripture says they saw the way that Jesus' body was laid in the tomb. They witnessed a hundred pounds of spices. They witnessed a linen cloth being wrapped around his body. They saw that it was a proper Jewish burial. And they knew nothing else had to be done. No other spices were needed to finish 
the burial process. Yet on their way home, in all their grief, I believe a conversation ensued. Mary and Jonah perhaps relived their life before meeting the Messiah. Can you imagine being healed of seven demons that controlled your entire existence? Demonic possession is equivalent to a force that has total dominance of your life. Extreme drug addictions, uncontrollable mental illness, no coping mechanism, no healthy relationships, no way to exist. Now they were completely whole in every way. Something in them on the way home said, a hundred pounds of spices is, is just not enough. It's not enough for my king. We appreciate Nicodemus' gesture, but I feel like we've got to do something to show our admiration, to show our gratitude, our devotion. Ladies, what can we do? And like you see at many funerals, although there's many beautiful flowers, everybody feels like they need to do something themselves. So as they're way home, they, they buy more spices. And they say, let's give even more. And let this make this the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So an act of devotion, worship, and gratitude. On the way home, before sunset, they prepare more spices for the burial of their master and king. And know they'll deliver them on Sunday. Imagine Thomas coming in next into the house. Thomas, as you may know, was a very calculating man. He was precise. He was the one who dared to speak out when no one else would. He questioned everything. He wanted proof. For generations, his name has been attached to a person who just doesn't believe. You mean you're going to be a a doubting Thomas, we'll say to people? He walks in and he says, what is that smell? Oh, it's spices for Jesus' burial. The woman replied, spices? Wasn't he already given a proper Jewish burial? Well, yeah, Nicodemus buried him with, with 100 pounds of spices and perfume. Exactly according to our tradition. Then why do we need more spices? Well, we just wanted to do more. Do you not understand? Jesus is dead. We're in hiding. We're about to go on the run. We're next. And we need every penny that we have just to stay alive. It was a waste of money for buying more spices to bury him. We couldn't help it. We love him. We had to do something. On Saturday, the women experienced the deep, overwhelming grief. We just feel like you have to do something. I imagine Thomas goes over and slouches down. No chair for Thomas. He's just crouched in the corner, hand on his head, trying to get another plan for the future but unable to stop thinking about the past. He, he began to do what every calculating man does, recount the last few days and few years of his life. He's analytical and he relives every uneasy feeling that he had about Judas. I'm a lot like that. When something goes wrong, I, I can obsess about every decision I've made for the last two or three years. I wish I would have. What if I could have? How would have things turned out? Uh, I second guess a lot. Thomas wishes he could go back and he wishes he would have said something. I knew it. I saw it. I felt it. Judas was rotten to the core and I kept my mouth shut. I'm the only one who has the guts to stand up and speak the truth. 
And all Jesus' talk about love and forgiveness and turning the other cheek made me soft. I blew it. I should have confronted him. He can't stop thinking about it. And he's so obsessed on Sunday that when Jesus rises from the dead, he won't even believe it until he gets hard proof. Debilitating regret and remorse for not taking action. Maybe John comes next. His eyes are swollen. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved, it says. He was one of the few that stayed there and was at the foot of the cross. He stayed until the end. In fact, when Jesus was dying, he looked down and he saw his mother. And he turned to John. And he knew that John would take care of his mother. And said, John, please take care of my mom from now on. I'm about to die. I can imagine John comes in and immediately sees Mary and he goes over and holds her tight and he won't let her go. And he reassures her, I'm going to take care of you from now on. I can imagine his brother James walking in a little bit later and immediately looks to John. John walks over, heads to him, puts his hand on his shoulder, looks him in the eye and says, I'm so sorry. All those arguments we had about who would sit at the right hand of Jesus when He came into His dominance, His kingdom, mean nothing now. And James says, me too. It was so selfish. The dream is dead. Aspirations of greatness are gone. They left a successful business to follow Jesus, I believe, with a hope of fortune and fame. I see Peter lurking in the shadows across the street waiting to see if everyone shows up. Maybe they won't miss me. He can't get the sound of roosters crowing out of his head. They seem to get louder and louder. His promise to Jesus was this, Lord, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And that promise was broken when a servant girl recognized him and said, I know you, you're one of his followers. And he said, I don't know the man. It happened two more times and he finally exploded in a swearing tirade. And the Bible says when he did that, Jesus turned and looked him in the eyes. He immediately went outside and wept bitterly. The image of Jesus looking at him at that moment of denial is just forever etched in his mind. I'm sure he wonders if the other disciples saw it. Do they know? What will they say? Shame and self-condemnation. He's never going to get to make things right. Jesus died before he could say he was sorry. And the last contact that he had with Jesus was those eyes just piercing him as he was denying his name. And finally he sees that everyone's in the house and I think he probably sneaks in the back door hoping not to be noticed. He says nothing. He just keeps weeping bitterly. He just keeps living in shame. On Sunday morning early, early, he, he jumps every time a rooster crows. It's like a sharp stabbing pain in his heart. He'll never recover. Saturday is a day between the crucifixion and the resurrection. We all know that, but they don't. So all they could do was wait and think and revisit 
and recount the course of the events a day before, a day with no closure, a day of anxiety filled with grief and regrets, remorse, shame, and condemnation. I think we've all experienced that dark wasteland between God's promise given and God's promise delivered. Saturday is wondering if the argument went too far this time, if she'll actually come back that night or she's gone for good. Saturday is not knowing or realizing the ramifications of your disobedience and sin, what's going to happen because of it. Saturday is that oppressive debt, the feeling like you're bound and you can never be set free. Saturday is staying up and waiting for your teenager who missed curfew again and wondering if that strained relationship will ever recover. Saturday is waiting on the test results from the doctor's office. Saturday is wondering if you'll ever get hired again. If you'll be able to make the the mortgage payment next month. Saturday is, is hoping that you can make it first through the first trimester of your pregnancy when you've already had a miscarriage before. Saturdays can last an hour. They can last a week. They can last years. I've had a lot of Saturdays in my life. <laughs> How do ones persevere Saturdays? When you don't know Sunday is coming, it's difficult. But you know what? We do know that Sunday is coming, don't we? We can read it over and over and over again in Scripture. Noah is saved by the ark. The children of Israel do make it to the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the, in the, in the wilderness. The lions don't eat Daniel. Jesus does rise from the dead. We have the privilege of perspective, but that doesn't make Saturdays any less painful. It just gives us the hope That Sunday is coming. Here's the best Saturday scripture I know. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, the good, the bad, the shameful, whatever it is, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. In all things, whatever life circumstances are happening, Whatever your Saturday looks like, here's the promise. You just need to wait and you need to rest. And you need to hope and you need to have faith. Knowing this, that on Saturday you may be resting, but God is not. He's working on the behalf of those who trust Him and are called according to His purpose. The best thing we can do on Saturday is to rest in His presence. And have faith in Him. Fridays, things go bad. Life gets rough. Saturdays, we don't know what's going to happen. But I'm going to tell you right now, Saturday or Sunday is coming. Saturday, God is setting in motion the wheels of redemption. He is working on your behalf to turn things around. So the best thing that we can do is really come together as a family. That's what the Sabbath was for them. That's the Sabbath for us. To love each other. And to keep faith alive and wait because soon the resurrection power of Jesus Christ will bring back to life all that was lost and take away all the grief and shame, anguish, agony, and self-condemnation that you feel on Saturday will disappear on Sunday. I guarantee it. 
It may be Saturday, <laughs> but Sundays are coming. Can we take a few moments? And I know some of you are sitting right there in the middle of Saturday right now. And I understand that. And we as a family want to gather around you spiritually right now and pray for you. And we want to ensure you that Sunday will come. The scripture says a pain lasts for a night, but joy will come in the morning. So, Father, right now, we just give to you our Saturday. We give to you those moments that seem so dark that we don't understand. That we question. That we live in grief or condemnation or shame. We give those moments to you and we decide that we're not going to overthink them. We're just going to rest in you and the promise of your salvation. We're not going to second guess ourselves. We're not going to go back and relive and recount every mistake we made, what we should have done, what we didn't do, what we did do. We let that go right now. We just release that in the name of Jesus Christ. And we have hope and faith. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, God, you are working right now on our behalf. We thank you for that, God. That is your promise in all things. You are redeeming our life. We are moving from glory to glory to glory. And we believe and pray that the resurrection power of Jesus Christ will infuse people right now sitting in this congregation that you were raised to life every situation that seems dead. And I believe for that and I stand for that for every person here in the name of Jesus Christ. You've been listening to a message from Streams Church in Goodyear, Arizona. Email any questions to streamschurch at msn.com. The mission of Streams Church is very simple, to lead people into their life calling, a relationship with Jesus Christ that is challenging, growing, and purposeful. For more information about service times, location, or events, go to streamschurch.org.